Well, why don't you grab your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 29, for this evening's study. Isaiah chapter 29. I love how these stories in Isaiah and what what we've been studying in Isaiah has been really so pertinent to today. And we'll see that even tonight. And I would say if you missed Sunday's study, it had to do um, there with um, the people of Israel taking counsel of men but not of God and doing stuff on their own, thinking they were being really smart, but they were actually being really dumb. And rather than listening to God's word... They went to the world and went with the world's system and the world's ways. And, and because of that, man, uh, they were headed for a heap of trouble. And we're going to see that tonight. We're going to kind of dive into that uh, more in detail. That was chapter 30. But we, we need to pick up chapter 29 as we left off there um, last week. So Isaiah 29, verse 1. It says there, Woe unto Ariel. To Ariel, the city where David dwelt, add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. I will distress Ariel, and there shall be heaviness and sorrow, and it shall be unto me as Ariel. Okay, so what we're doing here is we've, we've been seeing Isaiah, the prophet, hand out, pass out the woes, right? We've seen him, you know, saying woe. We saw last week, woe unto Ephraim there in uh, chapter 28. Now he's moved on to a place called Ariel. And you think, well, poor Ariel. Are we talking about the uh, mermaid, you know? I mean, uh, what's going on with Ariel? Ariel, as it turns out, is another name for the city of, can anybody guess? I mean, if you look at the context of the verse that we just read, you probably already know. It says, woe to Ariel, to Ariel, the city where David dwelt. Now that starts narrowing down the cities. Could be Bethlehem because David was from Bethlehem. But there was a city that was called the city of David that was also called Jerusalem. And that's the city we're talking about. This is the Lord using sort of a name of Jerusalem that's not the most common name, but it is a name nonetheless. And it's an interesting name. Ariel in the Hebrew means lion-like, or as uh, some of your Hebrew dictionaries would say, the lion of God. And uh, that's interesting because the lion of the tribe of Judah will rule and reign in Ariel. The, the lion of God is going to be there. So in some ways, there's a little bit of a perhaps signaling to us that we're talking about Jerusalem, but there's also that near and far prophecy that we're going to have to be careful about tonight. The near prophecy, of course, the Assyrians going to come along and besiege Jerusalem, and they're going to be hanging by a thread, and we're going to see that they'll be protected by the Lord, but it's going to be touch and go. And in the same way, that's going to happen even in the future still where um, the, the end is going to happen. And we, read, we did that Psalm chapter 46 tonight where it said, there is a river, the streams whereof shall make the city glad. We sang that. And the Bible says when Christ comes to rule in Jerusalem, he'll put his foot down at the same place he put his foot up. Do you remember where he ascended into heaven? There on the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. And that's where he's going to return and put his foot back down in the same exact place, the Bible says, and there's going to be an earthquake. 
and the earth is gonna split and water's gonna gush forth from the mountains of Jerusalem. There's no water real source. You know, there's the springs here and there, but you know, it's up on way up, you know, 3,000 feet above a sea level. Jerusalem's way up high in the mountains of Israel. Um, and uh, suddenly this river is gonna gush forth and go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea to the west and all the way to the Dead Sea to the east. And the Bible says when Christ comes and rules and reigns, it's gonna just bring everything to life. The, the river, the stream, whereof shall makes the city glad that we sang there from Psalm 46. All of that's talking about when Christ comes. And the idea of Jerusalem being called Ariel is really us foreshadowing when the lion of the tribe of Judah comes and rules and reigns. But that's just a little bit of a hint given to us. And we're gonna see both the near and the far prophecies of this chapter. But it's starting off pretty rough for the Jews. Woe unto Ariel, Jerusalem. Uh, add ye year to year, let them kill sacrifices. Again, that's Jerusalem. That's where they would do sacrifice there at the altar on the temple. So it's very sure to be Jerusalem, um, but he's gonna call it Ariel. Now it goes on to say in verse two, yet I will distress Ariel and there shall be heaviness and sorrow and it shall be unto me as Ariel. <laughs> and I will camp against thee round about, and I will lay siege against thee with a mount. And I will raise forts against thee. And thou shalt be brought down and shall speak out of the ground. And thy speech shall be low out of the dust. And thy voice shall be as of one that hath a familiar spirit or a demonic spirit is the idea there. And out of the ground and thy speech shall whisper out of the dust. Moreover, the multitude of thy strangers shall be like small dust, and the multitude of the terrible ones shall be as chaff that passes away. Yea, it shall be at an instant suddenly. Wow, this is a very creepy uh, description of what's going to happen in Jerusalem. You, you know, this, this language. Again, Isaiah is the prophet that uses some pretty heavy-duty imagery and, um, and, you know, uses all the literary devices to make this scary. And uh, he's trying to make a point. He's trying to shock the Jews into saying, man, we don't want any part of that. You hear these voices trying to mutter out of the dust of the ground and they sound like demonic spirits crying out. That's a pretty scary deal. We're talking thriller here uh, with the Jews in Jerusalem. And the Lord is trying to get their attention because they've lived in such rebellion against God. Um, and he's saying, man, you guys have done this to yourselves. It's coming, distress is coming, heaviness and sorrow, and you're, you're gonna end up underground, which means death. This image of speaking from the dust is talking about from the grave. And um, it, it's just a real dark and heavy duty sort of imagery here. Um, and, and Jerusalem, interestingly enough, has had plenty of its share of death and destruction. Isn't it interesting, the city in the world that's called the city of peace, Yerushalem is, or Yerushalom is the idea there. Shalom means peace, the city of peace. And yet is Jerusalem the city of peace? Uh, as it turns out, the city of peace is pretty much, that's like the least thing that it is. Um, did you know in Jerusalem during its long history, Jerusalem has been totally leveled and destroyed twice? Um, it's been besieged, that is, surrounded to where they were trying to starve the Jews out 
or other people that were in the city, um, besieged 23 times in history. It's been attacked by large armies more than 52 times. It's been captured and recaptured 44 different times in known history. I mean, I don't think Dundee has that record. (laughs) Nobody's fighting for Dundee, at least I don't think. Uh, But Jerusalem, what an amazing city that's just the epicenter of all this trouble. And all these massive armies that have come and gone, whether you're talking about the Romans or the Ottoman Turks or the British even, you know, I mean, it's, it's an amazing thing to uh, see the Assyrians and, and uh, the Babylonians, like pretty much anybody who was anybody had to get their, you know, claws into Jerusalem somehow. Now, the thing that's amazing about that is the question I often ask when I'm sitting in Jerusalem And that is why? Why is Jerusalem such a controversial place? And why are there so many battles and and people that want to sink their claws into Jerusalem and call it their own? Um, Well, I'll tell you, um, you know, it's funny because the city doesn't have anything that great. Like I said, it's up in the mountain. There's no, you know, massive resources or beautiful water beaches or like, why do people like Jerusalem? Technically, there's not a great reason. Now, don't get me wrong. Um, when you're sitting there in Jerusalem at nighttime as the sun's going down, seeing the sun hit the Jerusalem limestone, limestone on the sides of the hillsides there, it is, it is beautiful. It's called the Golden City because of that. Um, by code, that the, one of the reasons when you look at a picture of Jerusalem, all the exterior buildings are made of the same Jerusalem you know, lime, limestone there. It's that's the code. You can't build anything else. They want it to all look sort of uniform. And it, and it really is quite beautiful. Even the fancy buildings in Jerusalem, they're just made of this same Jerusalem limestone, only, the, only it's polished. Same color, but very fancy looking. And, um, and, and so Jerusalem does have a certain beauty to it, just even in the buildings. And then you say, well, the history, there's a lot of history there. But the reason the history's there is because it's an important city. But this still doesn't really answer why it's an important city. Well, Brett, it's, it's the holy, holy city of three world religions, you know, uh, if you would. Um, basically, you know, the, the Muslims claim it as their third most holy site. Did you know that? Christians, Catholics, Jews, we all claim it to be the holy city of Jerusalem. Now, who said that it was holy first? Um, well, that would be uh, perhaps the Jews, because the Jews there were given Jerusalem during the reign of David. That's why it's called the city of David, David's city here in our text. And it became the city of David and then, and then Solomon, David's son, the next king, built the temple in Jerusalem. And that's what made it the holy city of Jerusalem where God would dwell and the people would worship God there on the temple mount. So the Jews had it first. Then the Jew, Jesus, I heard a thing on the news today. There was an interview of some, somebody um, talking about how Jesus was an African-American, or like a, a, a black guy. And um, the, the, you know, the newscaster didn't know what to say to that. Um, um, she said, uh, well, I think he's from the Middle East, you know, and it was just, I was just thinking, oh my goodness, people forget. And, and the, you know, the Black Lives Matter guy was saying, um, you know, Jesus, uh, no doubt, was, was uh, you know, black-skinned. And... Um, and the interesting thing is, who cares what color skin he is? The truth is he was a Jew who died for the sins of red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They're all precious in his sight. 
Jesus loves the little children of the world, all the children. Uh, it's, it's, it's so sad that everybody's trying to divide that stuff up. Um, the fact is a Jew, someone who is hated and despised by the world and despised by the Romans and, and was minimalized, Jesus, a Jew, went to the cross for the sins of humanity. That's just powerful. So Jesus, being a Jew, was fulfilling Jewish religion. When Jesus came to die on the cross, it wasn't the doing away with Judaism and Christianity replacing Judaism. I would make the argument that Christianity, unbeknownst to some Christians and definitely unbeknownst to some Jews, Christianity is the fulfillment of Judaism. Jesus is the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world. He was a Jew who died a brutal death for the sins of the whole world. And that's why when Abraham was given the promise, by all, all nations of the earth will be blessed by you, Abraham. How would the world be blessed by the Jews? I could number the many reasons why we're blessed because of Jews. But the greatest reason is that by a Jew came salvation to the whole world. So now the, the city of Jerusalem has become the most holy site for Jews and for Christians because Jesus, a Jew, died on the cross for the sins of the world in Jerusalem. About 600 years after that, Muhammad came along and, and there in Mecca and Medina was doing his thing and, and basically was coming out of sort of more of a polytheistic sort of world where there were many sort of gods and what have you. But the question is, why did suddenly Muhammad circle around the one God, the crescent moon God of Allah? Um, and um, there, you know, he chose this kind of black stone God from uh, Medina. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a long story, but many people believe he was just trying to rally troops around that single cause of one God. The, that's when Islam was started, 600 years after Christ. And, you know, of course, Muhammad borrowed a lot of things from Christianity um, and Judaism, frankly, uh, but just kind of twisted the stories a little bit to make it sort of fit his narrative. 600 years later, don't forget, Islam was the Johnny-come-lately religion that sort of was mimicking Christianity and Judaism. It's just the truth. Study it historically. Uh, don't get mad at me. Just read history. Um, but all that to say, um, you say, well, when did Jerusalem become the third most holy city? Of course, there was Mecca, number one, Medina, number two, Jerusalem, number three. When did that happen? Fairly recently in history. Do you remember Yasser Arafat, the Palestinian PLO guy back in the Munich killings of the Jewish uh, Olympics uh, athletes back in Munich? Um, he was responsible for that, but he was this, you know, the PLO guy that got the Palestinian Liberation Organization sort of up and running back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. He was big. Um, but interestingly enough, it was his great un uncle, his great uncle, the Grand Mufti, who decided to declare Jerusalem this is in fairly modern history, modern day history, where the Grand Mufti said, um, oh, by the way, Jerusalem's the third most holy site. Why? Um, because he ascended from the Temple Mount there, which they wouldn't call it the Temple Mount. They call it Al-Aqsa, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which was built later after the temple was destroyed. They built the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And, um, and there's the Dome of the Rock Shrine. Everybody thinks that's the big Muslim thing. And it is a Muslim thing right now, the gold dome thing. But next to it, it's a smaller, dark-colored dome. That's their most holy site, is Al-Aqsa. Al and, um, and that's where Muhammad apparently, according to the Grand Mufti, ascended and went to heaven. So it's a fairly new thing. And the reason I point that out is Jerusalem never was really a Muslim thing until modern history. 
Um, and the Muslims that are there, the Palestinians that are there, are trying to erase the history of the Jews and say, no, 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 uh, Jerusalem's always been ours and there's no Jewish. There was never a temple ever here of Jews. They're, 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 te they're rewriting history. Um, and it's, it's quite sad because a lot of people are buying it and now they're teaching it in colleges and universities saying that, yeah, the Jews just, you know, never were really in Israel and all this stuff. Crazy, crazy. Um, they're trying to erase history. Um, and so Jerusalem has become this hotbed of controversy and guess who controls the Temple Mount today? Well, it's the Muslim. Um, the Jews control Jerusalem, but when Moshe Dayan took over the city back, uh, you know, back when he, you know, they stormed there on the, and took back the Temple Mount, Moshe Dayan's the guy with the patch, remember him? He, he gave the, the, the Temple Mount back as sort of a gesture of peace, kind of a, a land for peace sort of attempt to make the Muslims happy. And one thing that's never worked is land for peace with the Muslim. They want all the land uh, or there'll be no peace. Um, and, um, and so Jerusalem, because of this issue, the Palestinians claim it as their city, their own. The Arabs say it's their city. The Jews say it's their city. The Christians say it's their city. But the Arab-Israeli conflict is very much largely around this issue of Jerusalem. And the reason this is good for you to know this as a Bible student on a Wednesday night like this is you have to understand the reason Jerusalem is such an important city is not because it's beautiful. It is to a degree. Um, not because it's um, amazing. It's because God says in his word, Jerusalem is mine. <laughs> that's, that's the whole deal right there. God says, my name is on Jerusalem. Um, I think that's interesting that here it's called Ariel or the lion of the Lord or the lion, um, because in a way that sort of speaks to the name of the Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But we know that the Lord says, Jerusalem is mine, this is mine. He puts his name on Jerusalem. So anybody that claims that Jerusalem is theirs, they're wrong, it's God's. And that's why Jerusalem has been the epicenter of battle, of conquest, of besieging the city for centuries, for millennia. It's just because God says that's my city. And, and here's the thing I gotta say, um, and we're, we're planning hopefully to take another journey with the Athe Creekers to uh, Israel in 2021, November. That's our goal. So uh, we have people already kind of pre-signing up, saying don't, let us, for, don't, don't forget to let us know when signups happen, you know, that kind of thing. But one of the things I, I just love to do is bring people to Jerusalem because you can't really know until you're there you can sense that it's God's city. And it's, it's noisy and it's crazy and it's mayhem. Um, and there's, there's just, it's just kind of this uh, surreal experience. But when you're standing in Jerusalem, you, you de definitely sense there's something about the city that's just God, he's got his name on it. And uh, that's why there's tension, that's why there's anger and that's why there's trouble. Um, now, interesting, by the way, um, people say, well, Brett, I can't believe you guys take a group over to Jerusalem. That's scary. Isn't, don't you have to go from bunker to bunker and dodge those missiles and everything? The answer is no. Um, Jerusalem is safer and more peaceful right now than uh, Portland by far. Portland is way more crazy, especially in the last three or four months. But um, all that to say, when we go to Jerusalem, people do marvel and say, this truly is God's city. And you can't really put your finger on why other than God chose it. And he chose that during the time of Abraham when Abraham took Isaac up to sacrifice him on Mount Moriah. That was Jerusalem before Jerusalem was there. Um, it, was, it was God's when um, David took it, which was called the city of Jebus at the time. 
and then it became God's city when the city of David. All that to say, Jerusalem is the epicenter of Bible prophecy. It's where everything's gonna come down. It's where Jesus is gonna set up his throne to rule and reign during the millennial kingdom. And it's gonna be a whole new place at that time. Now you say, Brett, why are you going into all this? Because this prophecy and talking about the Jews being wiped out in Jerusalem and people crying out from the earth and this very creepy, scary imagery, it's not just what's gonna happen with the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but it's also gonna be fulfilled, these prophecies, uh, at the very end, in the day of the Lord, during the tribulation period. These same kind of things are gonna to happen to Jerusalem. And Zechariah, the prophet, actually deals with this. Can I uh, point you to that? Why don't you keep your finger here and go with me to Zechariah chapter 12. Um, Zechariah is toward the end of the Old Testament there. Zechariah chapter 12. And there, Zechariah is describing the, the, um, the day of the Lord and what's gonna, you know, signs of the times kind of thing. And Zechariah says something that is fascinating to me. In chapter 12 of Zechariah, starting in verse two, uh, he says in Zechariah 12, two, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. Um, you might notice your margin says slumber or poison. It'll put you to sleep death-wise, like it'll knock you out or be like drinking poison. Anybody that tries to handle it, he says, I'll make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people round about when they shall be in uh, the siege or besieged, both against Judah and against Jerusalem. And in that day, that's a key phrase, you Bible students know, when we're talking about in that day, we're talking about the day of the Lord, when Christ comes, rules and reigns. In that day will I make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all people. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered together against it. You know, what's interesting is when Zechariah wrote this, all the people on the earth could care less about Jerusalem. There was a few people groups, you know, once in a while, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Romans, the British, whenever. But isn't it interesting that the whole world right now is keeping their eye on Jerusalem? Um, there's, you know, it was such a big deal when Donald Trump said, Jerusalem's the Jews and that's their capital city. And, um, and everybody thought, everybody's gonna freak out. But the truth is that, that's what it was. So he was just stating the obvious. And, and when America put its stamp on that, the Jews were celebrating because the world says, no, it's not. Um, the, the, those pesky Jews, they're occupiers, they say, even though that's a total false narrative. So what does the UN say? The UN has been fighting for you know, decades now saying the Jews are occupiers of the West Bank. They need to get out of there. They need to be driven out. They've voted all these resolutions against Israel and against the Jews. You know, uh, and it's amazing. You know, they've only got a tiny handful of resolutions they've set against North Korea or against Iran, but they got dozens and dozens of resolutions they've charged against those Jews in Jerusalem. It's ridiculous. Uh, you know, the Jews are the only people that can say, God gave us this city and our land. Um, nobody else on the earth can say that. Not only that, but the world gave them Jerusalem when they felt guilty because of the Holocaust. Back when the League of Nations, which led up to the United Nations, kind of said, okay, by one vote, our president, finally, he said, yes, let's let Israel be a nation. So May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation and Jerusalem is, um, you know, part of it given to the Jews. But all that to say, you say, Brett, okay, so what's the problem then? If, if the world gave the city to them, if the, if the Jews were given that city by God and everything should be fine. 
But here's the thing, there's a spiritual event. People try to make this a political thing, the Arab-Israeli conflict. Or they try to make it a, um, you know, uh, an ethnic issue of Jews hating Palestinians. It's not that. Um, they, they try to make it this, that, and the other thing. But what it is, it's a spiritual conflict that where we're wrestling, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness. Jerusalem's got that, and that's why it's a hotbed of controversy. So it says here in Zechariah 12, it says, listen, it says, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And anybody who tries to burden themselves, verse 3, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone. All that burden themselves shall be cut in pieces, though all the people of the earth be gathered against it. Turn the page to Zechariah 14, just, just a couple chapters forward, and uh, check this out. This is even more about this. In chapter 14, verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Um, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall be uh, not cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as he fought in the day of battle. And his feet shall stand that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives there shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley and half the mountain removed toward the north and half toward the south. And you shall flee to the valley of the mountains and shall reach to Azal, which is Petra. What's this all about? And it talks about the living waters in verse 8 going from Jerusalem like we talked about earlier tonight. What's Zechariah saying? He's saying they're going to try in the last days to divide Jerusalem in half. Now, if you know anything about today's politics, if you watch, you know, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, those bastions of truth, um, I say that jokingly, um, but you'll hear them all say, you know, about Jerusalem, they need to, there needs to be a two-state solution. Uh, it's interesting that Donald Trump in his, uh, what did he call it, the um, deal of a century, I think, or something like that. He, he, he's, he's made this deal of a century to try to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. And all these presidents, whether you're talking Jimmy Carter, you know, Clinton, Obama, you know, George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., they've all tried to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict. They, they foolishly thought that they could somehow leave their legacy by solving this, you know, century-old, millennia-old problem. Uh, stupid. Uh, the, because here's the thing. Uh, it's not going to be solved ultimately until Jesus comes. That's what it says here. They're going to try to divide Jerusalem. And, and what's interesting, do you remember when Obama, when he was president, he said, we need to get Jerusalem back to the 1967 borders. Now, that border used to chop Jerusalem in half. Um, and, you know, when Moshe Dayan led his soldiers up to Jerusalem, they took that other half of Jerusalem and um, took it back because they were being threatened by these Arab nations. They defended themselves and gained half of Jerusalem back. And, um, and so now Jerusalem is Israel since 1967. But the UN and the various you know, groups want to see Jerusalem divided back into that 67 border. And what's interesting is here the Bible says in the last days they will seek to divide Jerusalem in half. And that's what they're doing right now. They're trying to do that. Even Trump's deal of a century or whatever that he's come up with that President, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu signed off on um, makes provision to uh, have a two-state solution, Palestinians and Jews and two states. And, uh, and one of the things they want to do is divide Jerusalem and give part of it over to the Palestinians. 
Now, um, don't get me wrong, I do care deeply for the Palestinian people and, and they're, they're in a tough spot because the Arab nations are pressuring them to occupy and take over that region. And the Jews are saying, you guys can't take over, this is Israel. It's not Palestine, it's Israel. And so there's this huge tension over there. And I believe the Palestinians are largely a pawn that are being played by the world. And it's really sad to me. Um, by the way, there's a real revival happening within Palestinian people coming to know Christ. And it's kind of a cool sideline deal that uh, I think the Lord is doing there. But, um, but all that to say, um, Jerusalem is the epicenter of all things pertaining to Christ's return. And those things that, the, that Zachariah says about them dividing Jerusalem, they're going to they're gonna divide Jerusalem in half, and it's going to be bloody in the battle of Armageddon toward the end before Jesus returns. It's going to be horrible, and Israel will be hanging by a thread. That's the bad news. And if you're a Jew in Israel and you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. People say, well, I don't like that story, but I would just humbly submit. It doesn't matter if you like it or not. God's word, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament says that's what's going to happen in the last days. And it's be, because largely the Jews today have, re, have rejected the Messiah, Jesus. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is when Jesus comes, the Bible says, and all of Israel will be saved. Um, God is not done with the Jews. He's got a beautiful plan for the Jews. And when all the nations of the world come against Israel, which they're posturing right now for that, uh, all the nations, except for the United States, strangely enough, we're like the one nation that's sticking with the Jews in Israel. Um, the rest of them pretty much forsaken and have gathered themselves against Israel. But once the United States is taken out of the way, and boy, don't get me started on that. How could that be? How could the United States should, you know, United States be taken out of the picture? <laughs> well, there's, there's a lot of stuff we can go there. Maybe we'll talk about that in our next prophecy update. But all that to say, um, it's coming down exactly the way the Bible says. And, um, and the reason I point this out is because this scripture tonight in, back to Isaiah, uh, boy, we're just putting along here tonight, but you know, he's saying that Jerusalem's gonna be in total distress. There's gonna be heaviness and sorrow, sorrow and God's gonna do what he's gonna do. And the Jews are gonna be in trouble. And it's largely because of their rebellion against the Lord. Well, Verse six, thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and great noise with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. Scary stuff, the imagery of um, destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and this earthquake might just be part of that earthquake when Christ puts his foot down on the Mount of Olives. Verse seven, and the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel even all that fight against her and her munition and that distress her shall be as a dream in the night vision. So basically it's gonna be like a nightmare is what, what's being said there. Um, and um, it goes in verse eight, it shall even be as when an hungry man dreameth and beholdeth he eateth, but he awaketh and his soul is empty. Or as when a thirsty man dreameth and behold, he drinketh, but he awaketh, and behold, he is faint, and his soul hath appetite. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. There's gonna be no satisfaction. There's gonna be frustration. It's like eating cotton candy, you're starving, but you're, you're not getting any substance. And those that try to take Jerusalem are gonna find emptiness there. 
And the reason, because God is gonna take it. God is the one. Um, and this is where Zechariah says, those who handle this, it's like a cup of trembling, a burden from stone, no one can handle it. So he goes on there, Isaiah talking to the Jews, he says in verse nine, stay yourselves and wonder. Cry ye out and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep and have closed your eyes. The prophets and your rulers, the seers hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book is delivered to him that is not learned, saying, read this, I pray thee. And he saith, I am not learned. I can't read it, I can't learn it. Now there's some language here. If you're familiar with the Bible, you're going, oh, I know what this is talking about. Verse 10, the Lord hath poured a spirit of deep sleep on you and has closed your eyes. The prophets and the rulers, the seers, you're not hearing, you're not seeing, you're not uh, connecting the dots. And this is the condition of the nation Israel as we speak. Um, isn't it interesting that the Jews just totally don't believe in Jesus Christ? Now, I know there's a few around the world, Jews, the Jews for Jesus and people that believe, the, the Jews. I have a good friend in Jerusalem who's a Christian, um, but he's rare, man. It's, it's, it's like, it's really hard to find a, a true Christ-believing, uh, Christ-loving, worshiping uh, Christian in Jerusalem because uh, the Jews, the Bible says their eyes have been blinded. It says right here in Isaiah, he says, your eyes have been blinded. Now, Paul the apostle jumps on this in Romans chapter 11. Let me read it to you. In Romans 11, it says in verse seven, what then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeks for. That's that cotton candy thing. But the election hath obtained it. Who's the elect? That's the Gentiles that we've obtained what we've been looking for in Jesus. We're the elect at this point. It says the election hath obtained it and the rest were blinded according as it is written. Um, God hath given them a spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear unto this day. See, Paul's quoting in Romans 11, uh, Isaiah 29, uh, you know, verse, verse 10 there um, that we were just reading. And then he says, and David saith, let their table be made a snare, their trap a stumbling block, and recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. The Jews right now, because of their rejection of the Messiah, of their going with the world and with idolatry and all the Old Testament stories, we realize the Jew, they have been blinded and it's happened to Israel. Now, because of that, we as Gentiles have been warned about something because we're the ones that are knowing Jesus. We're the ones in, that have been saved. And so listen to this. Um, uh, he goes on and says, um, let me go to verse 13 of Romans 11. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I provoke to emulation them which are my flesh, the Jews, and might save some of them. For if the casting away of them be reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? In other words, 
I'm preaching to you Gentiles, thank the Lord for us, and hopefully you and I will provoke the Jews to say, man, we wish we could have what they have. They have peace through Jesus, forgiveness of sin and his grace. And Paul's saying, I just hope that they're provoked to want to know Jesus is the idea there. For if the first fruit be holy, that's the Jews, the lump of it also is holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be as broken off and thou being a wild olive tree wert grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root of, and fatness of the olive tree, boast not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. What's he saying? Um, it's a mouthful, but basically saying, you Gentiles, you're the broken off wild olive tree branch. It's just broken and you were dead. But the, the tree is of the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is of the Jews. And guess what? You and I, we got to be grafted in. That's what he's saying. That wild olive branch gets grafted onto the, the tree. And if you've ever seen the grafting process, it's kind of cool. I got to do this when I was a kid. We had an orchard. And you could do that. And uh, it would actually grow into the branch and become it would, it would life-sustained uh, on that branch because of the tree would nourish the branch and bring it back to life. And that's the imagery. Paul's saying, you Gentiles have luckily been grafted in. That's why it's not so bright when churches say, God's done with the Jews. The Jews are evil because they rejected Jesus and God has cut them down. No, you better hope not because you're grafted into that tree. And that, that tree, if it's dead, you're dead. Um, that's what Paul's saying. And so he says, don't be arrogant, Gentiles. And meanwhile, the church has been just that. The church largely says, oh yeah, God's done with the Jews. It's called replacement theology, where the Jews have been replaced by the church. That's what people teach, and it's a wrong teaching. Read Romans 9, 10, and 11. If you give a careful read to this, you cannot be arrogant and say, God is done with the Jew. And you better hope that he's not done with the Jew, because if God says, you know what, I'm kind of tired of the Jews and I'm done with them, what keeps him from saying that about you? I'm tired of the Gentiles, they're also losers. So I'm gonna chop them both down. That's not God. God made an everlasting covenant with the Jews and he's gonna keep that covenant. Praise the Lord for that because God is faithful. And, and just like that, he's gonna be faithful to us, the Gentiles as well. So that's why he says, boast not against the branches, Gentiles, but if thou boast, thou bearest not the root. You're not connected to the real tree. And then, you know, um, uh, he says in verse 21, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he spare thee not. That's what I just said. If God gave up on the Jews, why is he not gonna give up on the Gentiles? That's Paul's argument. And then he says later on in verse 25, for I would not, brethren, that you be ignorant of the mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until. So, so Isaiah said, you're blinded right now. How long are they gonna be blind? Blindness has happened in part until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in and so all of Israel shall be saved. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. What's the time on this right now? The Jews have been blinded, really largely from Isaiah's time all the way to the present. And um, they only see like a shadow of what God is doing. But there's coming a time where that blindness will be lifted from their eyes. When is that? When the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And that is the church age, the Gentile church. When Jesus died on the cross, that's when the church age began. And, and man, we've been blessed to be grafted in to that vine that's gone sort of dormant, but it's coming back. 
and we're sustaining life through the Jews. Do you understand that? I hope you see that. That's why it's so goofy to say God's done with the Jews. You, you haven't really read your Bible if you think that. I, I believe that's huge and important. Um, so it's the church age. And when's the fullness of the Gentiles? I believe that that's the rapture of the church. When God finally says, okay, the day of the Lord is upon us. Rapture of the church happens. That's the Gentile church. Is, along with some of the Jews. Remember Ephesians 2 says it's Jew and Gentile made into one new man, the church. And when that rapture happens, all of them, they'll be us. We'll be taken away to be with the Lord forever. And then during the tribulation period where the, the blindness that has happened to Israel will be lifted from their eyes and they'll see Jesus as the Messiah. I'm, I'm trying to fill in some of those blanks for you and sorry we tend to belabor this point, but I hope you're seeing the bigger picture here. Back to Isaiah chapter 29. Um, their eyes have been, you know, closed, it says there in verse 10. Verse 11, and the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. Does that ring a bell? Remember Daniel wrote his book and said, okay, Daniel, seal up the words of this book. But at the end of book of Revelation, when John the apostle was still alive, he said, now do not seal up the words of this book. That's why the Gentiles, we get to see Bible prophecy and we understand what God is doing to his people, the Jews, and us, the Gentiles. We have an understanding because the words have been not sealed for us, but they were sealed for the Jews, blindness. Um, and uh, it goes on, and um, they said, you know, they couldn't learn it. They couldn't receive it. Verse 12, like we read earlier, because they're blind. That's the problem. <clears throat> Verse 13. Wherefore, the Lord said, for as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips to honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of men. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, for the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the understanding of their prudent men shall be hid. Woe unto them that seek deep to hide their counsel from the Lord, and their works are in the dark. And they say, who seeth us? And who knoweth us? Um, they think, remember, remember when little kid, little preschooler covers their eyes and says, you can't see me. That's what the Jews are doing. Lord, we're hiding from you um, and you can't find us. The Lord's like, I know where you are. I can see you. Um, and the Jews are in that place right now where they're like, hey, who, who can see us? Who can know us? But the Lord's saying, I can. Um, verse 16, surely your uh, turning of things upside down shall be esteemed as the potter's clay. For the work, uh, for shall the work say of him that made it, he made me not? Or shall the thing framed say of him that framed it, he hath no understanding? Um, isn't it interesting that so much of the world has rejected God as creator? He's the one who created all things. And here, you know, Isaiah says, can the vessel that the potter's making reply against the potter, say, you know, why have you made me like this? And, and, you know, can you say, you actually didn't make me, I just made myself? Um, this is Isaiah basically saying God was creator and the Jews were giving him credit for that. Just like so many today don't give God credit for creation. We believe in this fantasy called evolutionary theory. That's all it is, by the way, is a theory. Far from proven. And if somebody tells you it's proven, uh, they are not being honest, nor are they being scientific. 
Science requires uh, a real process for prove, uh, proof and, um, and, it, and it falls short. Um, interesting because um, I was reading this guy, uh, Le Comte de Nuit, um, or de Nuit uh, as he's called, a French mathematician and uh, philosopher. Um, and um, he did a, a whole lot of work on surface tension, he was kind of famous for that particularly, uh, learning all kinds of crazy brainiac type stuff. But not a believer in God, uh, but also he came to the conclusion that evolution was impossible. Not a Christian says evolution is a fantasy, and here's why. I'll, I'll just, so um, he, he was into math, so he was doing the work with uh, probability for a single molecule um, of high dissymmetry to be formed by the action of, by chance. Uh, Denoy found that uh, on the average, the time needed to form one such molecule uh, of our terrestrial globe would be about 10 to 253 power billions of years. Did you hear what I just said? You math people are starting to short circuit if you know what this number means. Um, the idea of one molecule on our globe um, forming would take uh, uh, the amount of time that would be equal to 10 to the 253 power billions of years. But, continued Denoy, ironically, he said, let's admit that no matter how small the chance, it could happen. One molecule could be created by such astronomical odds of chance. However, he said, one molecule is of no use. Hundreds of millions of identical ones are also necessary. Thus, we either admit the miracle or doubt the absolute truth of science. Nobody's gonna teach you that uh, or be honest with you about that in your colleges or high schools with all these evolutionary people trying to prove God's inexistence. Um, that's the thing. They start with that presupposition that there's no way that God could have created the heavens and the earth. So we're gonna believe in evolution. And what's even more sad is these Christians who are saying, well, Brad, I believe in theistic evolution. I believe it could have been through evol evolutionary processes. Um, that's, that's not what the Bible says. You're just not being honest about what the Bible actually says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and he spoke the worlds into existence. And he created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Well, Brett, there's problems with that. Listen, I understand that our brains can't get around that. Um, and it's, it's a little bit hard. But how absurd is it, really? Um, G.K. Chesterton, in the quotable Chesterton, um, said this, it's absurd for the evolutionist to complain that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it is more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into anything. See, at least the Christian has a presupposition of God and his existence, that we believe God always was, always has been, always will be. He's eternal in nature. Um, and at least we have that, you know, but the evolutionist has nothing. So you have to start with nothing and then suddenly you have something. Um, it's like this, frog plus princess equals handsome prince. That's called a fairy tale. But if you have frog plus 10 billion years equals handsome prince, that's called science. See, that's, that's the problem. Uh, science is worse than a fairy tale, like way worse. Um, and I, I just don't have that much faith. Um, you have to have like a Looney Tune, goofy, weird faith to believe that even with billions and billions of years, 
that uh, things evolved from goo to you. The prebiotic soup and some shock of electricity of some kind coming from nowhere out of nothing just suddenly breathe life into something and cells and suddenly uh, you know, this little squirmy thing started to grow and then it grew a pimple. But that pimple started to reproduce as a mutation in the cell and that pimple became more of a pimple and pretty soon that pimple became sensitive to light and after millions and millions of years of the pimple growing and re replicating in the cell, suddenly that little bump became sort of an eyeball and started to actually see stuff. Oh yeah, and then you have these little sexual organs on uh, cre creation and creatures. And, and you know, for millions of years, these little organs were starting to form. Meanwhile, how are, how's everything reproducing? Before those sexual organs are actually formed, hmm, that, that's something we, we have a little bit of a gap there. But, uh, uh, you know, evolutionists just have to kind of ignore all kinds of fantasy and problems that they have. And I, I know there's some of you that are, think you're really smart and scientific and you're mad, mad at me right now. I would just give you the challenge to honestly ask some of the real questions that I've noticed um, a lot of times the so-called academia ignores. And there are very scientific people. And you, if, you, if you don't like Christians and if you hate me, I understand. But check out how many secular, non-believing scientists are saying, uh, no, we, we can't believe in evolution. It's too far-fetched. Like Le Comte de Nuit, he, he was right. Uh, he was honest. And sadly, we don't have too many honest people out there anymore. Well, all that to say, this is what the Jews' mindset is. You know, God didn't make us. There's no intelligent design. Uh, the, the pot's telling the potter, I made myself. And you don't know how you made me. That's, that's basically the Jews. Um, so all that to say, um, he's indicting them for that kind of a worldview. Well, quickly, verse 17. Is it not yet a very little while and Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be esteemed as a forest? Um, right now, it's a minefield over in Lebanon. It used to be a beautiful forest. Um, now it's a mess because of Hezbollah up in the north over Israel. But um, it, it, it has gone through its seasons of beauty and, and glory. And then now it's in war-torn ugliness. But I believe it's possible that Lebanon will become beautiful again someday uh, in the far version of this prophecy. Verse 18. And in that day shall the deaf hear the words of the book and the eyes of the blind shall see out of obscurity and out of darkness. The meek also shall increase their joy in the Lord, and the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the terrible one is brought to naught, or brought to nothing, or the terrible is the idea of in intimidating. Um, the intimidating one will be brought to nothing, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off. That make a man an offender for a word, and lay a snare for him that reproveth in the gate, and turn aside the just for a thing of nothing. Um, it, you know, all things will be made right in the millennial kingdom. The poor will be blessed. The intimidating will be put down. Um, you know, the idea is, um, you know, there's going to be joy for the meek. Uh, like Jesus talked about, <clears throat> blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's going to happen. The meek are going to be inheritors of the earth. Right now, it's the loud and the boisterous and the strong. But that's going to be turned upside down in the millennial kingdom. Verse 22, Therefore thus saith the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall not now be ashamed, neither shall his face now wax pale. 
Um, and this is all talking about now when Israel will be saved. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 27. So he's saying they won't be ashamed at that point. Verse 23, but when he seeth his children, the work of mine hands in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and glorify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. <clears throat> Chapter 30, we looked at on Sunday quite a bit. Let's, let's take, uh, kind of try to get through this in verse one. It says, woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, that walk to go down into Egypt and have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh, to trust in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the strength of Pharaoh be your shame and the trust in the shadow of Egypt your confusion. We saw how today Christians in the church are sliding down a slippery slope to um, trust in the world. Egypt's a type of the world. Pharaoh's a type of Satan. And they were putting their trust in Egypt and in, the, in Pharaoh to save them from the Assyrian army. By the way, this is also that time, if you recall, where Hezekiah tried to appease the Assyrians. Do you remember this? He did it by going to them before he made alliance with Egypt. He took the council of men and said, what do we need to do to make you happy? And they said, well, if you give us lots of gold. And do you remember where Hezekiah the king, during the time of Isaiah prophesying this, do you remember what he did? He went and got all the gold in the temple in Jerusalem and he piled it up and gave it to the Assyrians and said, here. And he tried to pay him off. But that never works, by the way. You know, you can maybe bide some time a little bit, but um, the Assyrians still came uh, ready to trounce. Um, so um, Hezekiah did this a couple times, this taking counsel of the world, but not of God. It goes on in verse four, for his princes were at Zoan and his ambassadors came to Hanes. Those are Egyptian uh, cities, by the way, that wouldn't be able to help them. Verse five, they were all ashamed of a people that could not profit them, nor be a help, nor profit, but shame and also reproach. So the Egyptians, they thought, they'll save us. We'll, we'll ally ourselves with the Egyptians. That was the second harebrained idea Hezekiah and the guys had. But uh, the Lord's, he's coming down on them for making that peace treaty and alliance with the Egyptians. He's saying, man, they're gonna be your shame. Verse six, the burden of the beasts of the south into the land of trouble and anguish from whence come the young and the old lion, the viper, the fiery flying serpent. Um, they will carry their riches upon the shoulders of young asses and their treasures upon bunches of camels to a people that shall not profit them. For the Egyptians shall help in vain and to no purpose. Therefore have I cried concerning this, their strength is to sit still. Now this last phrase, some of your new translations make up some really kind of funny lines. You'll see the word Rahab in some of your newer translations. And um, I believe it's the New American Standard, Standard that says Rahab hath become exterminated or something like that. Um, uh, and uh, I forget what the NIV says, but it's just kind of this funny thing. And you think, what, what is it, Brett? Your, yours says their strength is to sit still. Um, the reason that it's translated so weird is we don't know what some of these words are. They're like, they're so ancient, these Hebrew words that Isaiah is using, it's hard to translate. But upon close inspection, all of these translations do kind of fit a certain narrative. And it's like this idea, the Egyptians are not gonna help you. 
but they're gonna, they're gonna either be sitting still, twiddling their thumbs when they should be helping you, or the idea is you will be sitting still because you won't be able to do anything. But it's just the idea is the Egyptians are gonna be in vain, they're gonna not be able to help you, and you're gonna be toast, trusting in the Egyptians. Um, so they're basically, the word Rahab can also be pride or strength. You know, you're, you're proud that you're linked to these Egyptians, but you're gonna be sitting still. Verse eight, now go, write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come and forever and ever. That's what we're reading right here. We're reading what they wrote in a book about this time. Thank the Lord, we, we have this thousands of years later to read in a book. That's what the Lord told him. Now go write in a book, verse nine, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things. Speak unto us smooth things, prophecy deceits. Get you out of the way, turn aside of your path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Who would do this? Who would say, we only wanna hear stuff we wanna hear. We don't wanna hear what the prophets really have to say. We don't wanna know what the seers are really seeing. That's depressing. Who, the truth hurts, so we'd rather just listen to what we wanna hear. Who would do that? Well, as it turns out, the Bible says in the last days, Amos chapter eight, verse 11, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor of thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. There's a day coming where people will not have ears to hear the word of the Lord. And I think we're there. That's the way it was back then when Isaiah's coming against these, these children of Israel saying, man, you guys tell your prophets, we don't wanna hear prophecy. The seers are the ones who were like wise men who saw with wisdom what was coming. They said, we don't wanna see, we don't want you to see anymore. No prophecy, no seeing, just be quiet. We only wanna hear TED Talks. We only want to hear what Freud has to say or psychology. Or we only want to hear stuff that makes us happy or things that we think are correct. But the word of God, we don't want to hear it. See, I'm concerned, and man, I could go off on this one for a long time. But one of the greatest problems that we're having is these last days that I believe we're living in, is people don't want to hear the word anymore. The idea of a church going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, used to be kind of a common thing in America or around the church around the world. But now we're the exception. There's very few churches still taking it book by book. Some people do it, you know, a book of the Bible here and there, which is a step in the right direction. But I think the book by book going through the whole scripture and talking about what the Bible says, not my opinion on how to balance your checkbook or having experts come in on marriage and, and TED Talks on certain things that sound so impressive. And it's like, we wanna just take in, we've got all this information but we're not doing well as a people. And we're just plugging our ears saying we don't wanna hear the truth. Um, you might say, well, Brett, you know, you're teaching the Bible and you've got quite a group of people. You know, we, we get like 30,000 people on a weekend watching our, our online service, that's great. Um, but do you realize how tiny that is? What, what, like compared to the world? Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me is, um, you know, when you look at social media and your, you know, effectiveness uh, and all this, I, I find it interesting because um, 
there, there's people that I know that are into fashion and they have, you know, Instagram on fashion and they have, you know, 30, 40 times more followers than your pastor uh, or, you know, people that are Bible teachers. Like the stuff that people love to follow, it's kind of not the Bible people, um, but they'll follow just about anything else. It's amazing. You know, people talking about health and essential oils, millions of followers, uh, people that want to talk about the Bible, uh, not so much. <laughs> it just kind of shows our culture and what we're really interested in and the things that we think are important. Now, I'm not saying all those other things are bad. I'm just saying, what does our culture want to hear? As it turns out, largely, they don't want to hear a guy like me saying, here's what the Bible says. And there's a lot of pushback on that. That's just the truth of the matter. Um, I, I'm blessed because I have a bunch of you that are saying, Brett, we're on board and we're really glad we have a chance to get in the scriptures tonight and go into the Bible. And I'm so thankful for this congregation that's willing. But you guys are kind of the rare, I know that's a lot of people that are tuning in tonight and that's, I'm, I'm so happy about that. But the one thing the Lord's put on my heart in these last couple of years is um, we need to reach as many people as we can as we're living in, I believe, these last days. And some of you may, may have seen our attempts and efforts to reach more people. And some people have not liked it, but we like the old Athey Creek where we didn't have any online stuff. And it was just us sitting in a little room, getting in the scriptures. Those were the good old days. Those were fun times. But why wouldn't we want to see more and more people saved to come to know Christ? There's so many people deceived by false religious systems and people's ideas of what a Christian is, or there's so many goofy ideas out there that look, people listen to all this goofy stuff on YouTube and stuff. I just think we have a unique opportunity in these days to reach as many people as we can. And so if you do see us doing stuff like that at Athey Creek, it's not because we want to say, well, let's, let's try to get Pastor Brett to be, you know, more out there. That's, that's not our goal at all. Um, if you know me personally, that's the last thing in the world I want. But what I do want is to have Jesus known and I want his word to be heard. And if, if somebody will hear that from me, great. Uh, that's the goal. Um, the Lord uses the weak and the foolish things like me <laughs> to confound the wise and, and you too. Uh, guess what? We all qualify to be used mightily in these days where people are saying, I don't want to hear it. And they want, they'd much rather hear Black Lives Matter and their philosophy than actually hearing what the Bible really says. That's just the truth of the matter. We're living in the days the Bible long ago said would be here where there'd be a famine in the land um, where people would not be really wanting to hear it anymore. That's what happened here. Verse 12 of chapter 31, or 30, pardon me, 30 verse 12. Wherefore, thus saith the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and stay thereon, Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you as a breach ready to fall, swelling out in a high wall, whose breaking cometh suddenly and an instant. And he shall break it as the breaking of a potter's vessel that is broken in pieces, he shall not spare, so that there shall not be found in the bursting of it a shred or shard to take fire from the hearth or to take water out of the pit." In other words, you're like a pot, your wall of protection that you think you're in, it's going to shatter like a pot. There's not even going to be a, any semblance of a pot left. It's going to be worthless. And that's the thing the Lord's telling us, you know, if, you, if you're really into this and that, that's not something the Lord's into, it's just going to shatter someday. And it's, you're going to be there left with nothing but shards that are going to just be a waste. 
For verse 15, thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest shall you be saved. In quietness and confidence shall your strength shall be your strength, and you would not. But you said, no, for we will flee upon horses, therefore you shall flee, and we will ride upon the swift, therefore they that pursue you will be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and the rebuke of five shall you flee till you be left at, as the beacon upon the top of a mountain, as an ensign on a hill. In the book of Deuteronomy, um, there in chapter 17, uh, it talks about how the children of Israel would, uh, when they were walking with the Lord, if they were keeping his commandments, statutes, and judgments, that, you know, um, five of them would chase a hundred, and a hundred of them would chase 10,000, if they were obedient to God. But here in this passage, 1,000 are going to be running at the rebuke of one Assyrian, like how the table is turned, because they had not walked with the Lord. And the promises of God, some of them are nullified by the behaviors of the, of the people. So now they're just running for their lives. And we looked at verses 15, 16, 17, and 18 on Sunday uh, when we talked about, you know, uh, hurry, worry, scurry. And uh, do we listen to the world? Are we aligning with the world? Or are we listening to the word of God? And so he goes on in verse 18, says, therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. And therefore will he be exalted that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. Blessed are all they that wait for him. There's two things here. There's people that wait on the Lord, wait for the Lord, and there's the people that God's waiting for. And it seems the rebellious children of Israel, he's just waiting. So he's put blindness in their eyes. And now for centuries, they've been kind of walking around blind. But the Lord's waiting for that time where he's gonna lift the blindness. And the Lord is patient, long-suffering toward people. So he's gonna keep his covenant and promise with the Jews. And he does with us. But the question is, who's waiting on whom? Is, is it you waiting upon the Lord or is the Lord waiting on you? That's the question. Is he waiting for you to repent and stop listening to the world more than the word? To stop, you know, uh, thinking things are true that are actually false? And, uh, and the Lord would say, man, I'll wait on you. You can be stressed and anxious and weird and all that stuff if you want to. I'll wait, the Lord says. But I'd rather be the one waiting on the Lord. Just, Lord, move in your time, in your way with me. Have your way with us. That's what happens. Well, verse 19, for the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. He will be very gracious unto thee at the voice of thy cry. When he shall hear it, he will answer thee. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity, the water of affliction, yet shall not thy teachers be removed into a corner anymore, but thine eyes shall see thy teachers. So the, you know, the Jews are not listening to those who would speak the truth. They put them off in the corner, but that's not gonna happen forever. Verse 21, and thine ears shall hear a word behind thee saying, this is the way, walk ye in it, when you turn to the right hand and when you turn to the left. The person that's seeking the Lord, the person that's looking to the word of God, they're gonna have that still small voice whispering, turn right turn left. Don't you want that direction in your life that comes from just being linked up with the Lord, tuned into the Lord and his word? Verse 22, you shall defile also the covering of thy graven images of silver and the ornament of thy molten images of gold. Thou shalt cast them away as a menstruous cloth. Thou shalt say unto it, get thee hence. 
Then shall he give the rain of thy seed, that thou shalt sow the ground withal, and bread of the increase of the earth, and it shall be fat and plenteous. In that day shall thy cattle feed in large pastures. The oxen likewise, and the young asses that ear the ground shall eat clean provender, which hath been winnowed with the shovel and with the fan. And there shall be upon every high mountain and upon every high hill rivers and streams of water in the great day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon shall be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun shall be as sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day that the Lord bindeth up the breach of his people and healeth the stroke of their wound. This is talking about the kingdom. When Christ comes and rules, it's gonna be very different. People think the kingdom's gonna be just like today, only Jesus is gonna be off in Jerusalem ruling and reigning, and you and I are gonna be sitting here in Portland doing the same thing we're doing today. It's not gonna be like that. It's gonna be radical. The moon's gonna give off light like daytime. The sun's gonna be seven times brighter. Well, Brett, we'll all die then. Well, not necessarily. We're given new bodies. Who knows what we can take? Who knows what this is gonna look like? But it's gonna be great and there's gonna be increase and plenteousness in the earth. That's what's being said here. Verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord cometh from far, burning with his anger and the burden thereof is heavy. His lips are full of indignation and his tongue as a devouring fire. His breath as an overflowing stream shall reach to the midst of the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of vanity. And there shall be a people, uh, pardon me, a, a bridle in the jaws of the people causing them to err. This is all talking about Christ's return, the battle of Armageddon, the blood flowing to the horse's mane. Some of this imagery for some of you is familiar, um, but the idea is he can do what he wants to with humanity causing people, like with a bridle, he'll be able to cause them to go whatever direction he wants them to go. Verse 29, but you, the believers, the people that are following the Lord, the Jews, and I believe also the raptured church, you shall have a song as in the night when the holy solemnity is kept and gladness of heart as as when one goeth with a pipe to come into the mountain of the Lord to the mighty one of Israel. And the Lord shall cause his glorious voice to be heard and shall show the lightning down on his, of his arm with the indignation of his anger, with the flame of a devouring fire, with scattering and tempest and hailstones. And these are all images of Christ and his return. The tribulation period, Revelation 6 through 19, uh, when God sets up the stage for his second coming, uh, where Christ is gonna come. And the hailstones, scattering, earthquakes, storms, all that stuff is predicted during that time. Now remember, there's a coming world leader in that time and he's called the Assyrian in the Bible. So in the near prophecy of Isaiah, we're talking about the Assyrians, but in Isaiah's gaze, as he goes past the Assyrian 701 BC to the Assyrian, who knows, 2021 AD, or whenever it's gonna be, I'm not naming a date. But um, look at verse 31, for as though the voice of the Lord shall the Assyrian be beaten down, which smote with a rod. Um, That's another name for this coming world leader Antichrist, the Assyrian. So I think we're talking about future still. Now this gets really interesting, verse 32. And in every place where the grounded staff shall pass, which the Lord shall lay upon him, it shall be with tabrets and harps, and in battles of shaking will he fight with it. So there's gonna be music playing, and those that love the Lord or follow the Lord, they're gonna be uh, playing along with music. Um, and, and drums, by the way. Then it says, for Tophet 
is ordained of old. Yea, for the king it is prepared. He hath made it deep and large. The pile thereof is of fire and much wood. The breath of the Lord, like a steam of brimstone, doth kindle it. What's this thing of Tophet? The word Tophet is an interesting word, and boy, I wish we had more time for tonight, but the word Tophet is, um, is this word that means drums. And this is actually a place that Isaiah and the people during Hezekiah's time would be familiar with. Tophet was a valley. It was called the Valley of Hinnom or the Hinnom Valley. Um, and it's a place that's very unique in Jew, the Jewish history because it was during the time of even Solomon. When Solomon was walking in his paganism and doing all this crazy stuff, do you remember Solomon was worshiping Moloch and Chemosh, the gods where they would sacrifice live children on these burning arms of Moloch? And they did that in the Valley of Hinnom or the Vale of Hinnom outside, just on the edge of Jerusalem. Um, when we go to Israel, I always like to point out when we're driving our bus around you know, the southern steps and then we come around a little further and you come to this pretty little park area in this valley, right in the lower side of Jerusalem. And you think, oh, what a lovely place. It's called the Valley of Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom, also called Tophet. Why is it called Tophet? The, the word drums. It's because in the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of Hell, does Gehenna sound familiar? That's the word hell. All of death and hell is gonna be thrown in Gehenna, Revelation chapter 20, if you read it, it's the final hell that the Bible talks about of outer burning and eternal death. Horrible place. There's a place in Jerusalem called the Valley of Hell, Gehenna, or Tophet, where the drums beat. You see, when Solomon and the people were horribly pagans, you know, sacrificing children on the idol of Moloch, the mothers would bring their firstborn son and they would give them to the priests of Moloch and they would place these babies on the arms that had been heated up to red hot incandescent heat. And they would see their children literally fry to death. And it was a horrifying thing. The women would be screaming, but they would beat the drums of the Valley of Hinnom, the Tophet, the drums, the Valley of Drums. That's why they called it that. They'd beat these drums so that nobody could hear it. So this idea of Tophet is another name for this place called Gehenna, which is another name for hell. You see, that place in Jerusalem would be sort of a foreshadow of what hell will be. Um, and that's why the apostle John speaks of that eternal place of death and destruction where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth called Gehenna. Um, again, if you wanna read about that, it's Revelation chapter 20, it talks about how Satan and his demons, the false prophet, the antichrist, they'll all be thrown into that final place. That'll be the end of them. We'll see them no more because they'll be there forever. And the Bible says they'll experience eternal torment there. You say, Brett, that's a horrible thing. Not for Satan and his demons. I think that's probably a good place for them because uh, Lord knows. But will people go there? The answer is yes. People don't like that. But the problem is they need to understand it's what the Bible says is gonna happen. Anyone who says, I don't want God, I don't want Jesus, I don't wanna be saved, I can handle it myself, uh, I'm a good person. The Lord is saying there's no one good. And that everyone, because of our sinful demeanor, and you, we, you and I have a tendency to think, oh, my sin's not that bad. Well, the one that matters, God says it is bad. And he says it's so bad that the person that sins, which is all of us, deserves eternal death and hell. Well, who is he to say that? God, who created you, 
and that's where Paul in Romans 9 echoes what we just read in Isaiah when Paul says, who is the clay that replieth against the potter? He made us. Who are we to say, I don't know if I like hell. Um, Doesn't matter. He's the potter, he made you. But because if you look at the hands of the potter, you'll notice these nail prints stuck in his hands as he's shaping you and your life. And he earned the right to shape your life because he loved you so much that he died on a cross. Instead of you going to hell, you got to be saved for your sins, from your sins by Jesus, the potter. So, you know, for somebody to go to hell, people say, I don't think God's gonna send people to hell. He doesn't, you send yourself there. It's just the um, default direction everyone's going. And God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that nobody would have to go to Tophet, Gehenna, or hell and, and fry for eternity. Praise the Lord. He's gracious and kind, compassionate, and he's just lovingly reaching out to anybody who'll take the free gift. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It's just God's loving grace and mercy that he shows to anyone who will receive it. That's the message that we're trying to get across to people today because, man, people are not wanting to hear it. And they're going to be so angry that they'll just reject God all the way to Gehenna, all the way to hell. That's why Athey Creek's busy doing what we're doing. You know, it's interesting. The more reach we have, the more beautiful things that the Lord's doing through this congregation, the more challenges we have, honestly. Um, and man, you know, some of you, we've been kind of distant because of the COVID thing. And I really, that's part of the trial, I think, is that we're all separated and stuff. And I'm looking forward to sometime being back with you guys here in the room. Um, that's part of the trial, but there's, we've been through a lot of other trials as well. And, and um, I think it's because of effectiveness. It just seems in my lifetime over the years, I've noticed that the more effective we tend to be by the grace of God to be reaching into unsaved lives and people hearing the gospel, the more challenging times we have. And uh, Athey Creek, just on a behind the scenes level, has been hit a lot this last year. But, um, but I also rejoice that, man, the Lord is bigger than all those things. And we've been able to see really good fruit during this time. But man, I appreciate your prayers and I appreciate you guys being with me as we study through the Bible. And I hope you're pointing people to Christ, the one who saves us from all of our sins. Man, that's the glorious truth. And we'll pick it up in chapter 31, Lord willing, next Wednesday night. Let's close with a word of prayer. And Father, we thank you for this scripture that reminds us, Lord, the the scary part of these chapters is how we recognize our current culture, our current attitude with that of the Jews back in Isaiah's time who didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear the words from the prophets or the seers and they told them to sit down and be quiet. And they only wanted to hear things that they wanted to hear and had itching ears Lord, we, we realize we're living in those same days. And even as they were living in perilous times, we're living in perilous times. Lord, we just recognize how your word shows these truths layer upon layer and, and how these prophecies tend to be nearer and then far and then even farther still. But you give us this. You even told Isaiah, write this down in the book so that generations that come can hear and read. Lord, we thank you for doing that, giving us your word. Your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light into our pathway. Thank you for that, Lord. Now bless these, your people, who've taken time to study the word tonight. May it bring forth good fruit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.